Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. That is so true. One day, one day, the three of us will join forces like a giant robot to be one great robotic woodworker. Station. That day is not today, though. Okay, so welcome to uh, Wood Talk number 409 for September 18th, 2017. On today's show, we're talking about intentionally building things out of square, the necessity of miter saws, Ed, it's a topic we just can't get away from. <laughs> Adding texture, uh, choosing a router plane, and introducing new woodworkers to tools. Uh, we should mention that today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Bruso Hardware. Uh, you want to check out their photo and extra newsletter. It's really, really good. It's a weekly update from Bruso dedicated to customer-submitted photos. Bruso's customers work on detailed projects including ring boxes, humidors, keepsakes, gun boxes, and furniture. It's an excellent source of inspiration for your next project. The newsletter is short, quick, and has great photos and is delivered right to your inbox. To sign up, visit bruso.com slash photo extra. That's all one word, bruso.com slash photo extra. Thank you so much, Bruso. We love you guys. Keep doing what you do, making the best hardware in the world. That's what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about? In the world. All right. So, a little bit of a different format, kind of a loose format. We're going to focus on questions today. Uh, nothing for, um, you know, what's new or what's on the bench, because we're actually recording at the same time as we did at the previous show, so there's nothing to add to that. We what's still... new? A cricket. Oh, no, that's not new. That was in the last show, too. If that, if that cricket was dead, then it would be something new. Okay. So, let's just jump right into it, shall we? I've got a question here from Nick, Nick Carruthers. He says, Mark, uh, in response to your Instagram picture of your garden gate install using the woodpecker square for reference, I got a lot of funny comments about that, by the way. Um, Was it difficult to intentionally build something that's that far out of square? Uh, Did you have to um, premedicate yourself if you had to to use mismatched chisels to make it? uh, Would that have sent you over the edge? Uh, Now, I know he's in jest here, but it's a really good question. Building out of square. Now, uh, you talk to someone who does installs and on-site builds 
and they would be like, what, what's the problem? <laughs> like right, everything yeah. I do square is like, it's just so not a normal an issue. day. Yeah, exactly. Another day on the job site. Uh, for someone who is isolated to a shop where I live in this imaginary bubble where everything is flat, square, perfectly parallel, coplanar, like that's my goal is to to get all those reference surfaces um, in line with one another. Building something out of square is weird. And I think it, the the biggest challenge with it is thinking of downstream complexities and things that may happen because of that. So even if you figure out like, okay, in this case, it's a garden gate. I'm going to make this taper. I'm going to make sure that this goes in this way. And then you have to stop and think, well, what happens when it swings open though? Does that change the way this door swings? Am I going to, you know, is it going to contact the the patio as I push it all the way to, uh, you know, it's full extension. So there are other things you really have to think about um, downstream stuff that just isn't really that much of a concern, or I guess maybe I'm used to it in the, in regular furniture building. I know how to anticipate those things. Uh, but when going out of square, it is weird. It's just uncomfortable. I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I keep looking at it and I know it's out of square. So it kind of drives me nuts. So that's why when I put the pictures up, I put the first one up there with no reference point and all you see is the gate. And I built it specifically so that I would try to hide the fact that it is not square. Uh, and it worked. Uh, the vast majority of people had no idea. You had a couple people who were like, yeah, I think I, I could have sworn I saw something, but I thought it was the the camera angle or the lens playing tricks. Yeah, sure you did. And that's what I found like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Of course. That's yeah, why, whatever. that's why you didn't say anything before. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but ultimately the, it was a successful thing because most people did not see it. And then when I put a big old red square on it, um, it was very obvious. In fact, there were a few people, I'm pretty sure cause it's the internet. So you never know. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they were accusing me like as if I was making a joke, like I took the square and I actually made it out of square and put it on the gate and said, hey, look how out of square my gate is. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And <laughs> yeah, because why not do that with a super expensive woodpecker limited run tool? Yeah, that yeah. thing is set up and I'm not touching it until it's like until I have to. So ultimately, it, it did seem like it was a successful uh, venture in building out of square. Uh, but I will tell you, it was weird and um confusing and I'm not even sure how I feel about it at this point, but <laughs> the gate is there. Uh, I would have, I think what, have, what would have pleased me as a builder would have been to simply shim out and change the shape of what I'm putting this into so that I could build a square gate. But that was actually a much, much harder and more involved process. So I backed down to uh, this out of square sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah, I find it interesting because I've had this conversation a lot with um, folks in the hand tool school and square is kind of completely irrelevant mm -hmm. when when you're not setting fences and you're not like setting blade angles and you're just working to a line, you know, so um, I don't know, like I, I was having a conversation about making compound angled cuts and it's like, you know, a square cut is still an angle. <laughs> Yeah. 90 degree angle. Yeah. It's just a matter of kind of adjusting your perspective or possibly adjusting the wood so that you're sawing perfectly vertically. But I find that when I'm working out of square, um, it's a matter of just kind of now my square is my bevel gauge. Mm -hmm. And I just set the bevel gauge or four bevel gauges, depending on how many angles there are. Yeah. And that is now my gold standard. And I just work to that. And it, it is it is kind of a um, a mindset shift. But when you're not working with set fences and things like that, taking the wood to the tool, but more the tool to the wood, it kind of becomes irrelevant mm -hmm. um, in my experience. So um, I don't know. I, this question struck me as odd 
Cause I yeah. was like, what do you mean? Why is that weird? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I do that all the time. Not on purpose. Just that was another response. I got a lot. Like I do this all the time. I just didn't mean to do it. Um, yeah, it was interesting. A couple people had made responses like square is sort of a, a relative and also maybe like a human brain construct where most of the world is, is much more chaotic than that. And things are not necessarily in nature, uh, perfectly straight, perfectly square. I mean, there are some interesting things in nature that would boggle your mind that are like geometrically accurate. But, um, I I do think that it is sort of a human evolved human natural instinct to bring order to things. And, And one of those things is what allows proportions to look right and certain proportions to look wrong and something that's out of square relative to something else being less pleasing than something that is square, coplanar, straight, whatever these things are. So it's, you know, I could see an argument on both sides saying, Hey, embrace the chaos. You know, if it's not perfectly square, who cares what, who says things have to be that way. But I think it's our sort of evolved monkey brains that say, "Eh, no, this makes sense. We want to see this order. This is pleasing to the human condition. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, and, but I think it is something that is a result of our evolution and, and how complex our brains are at this point. Yeah. But then you add the design elements of negative space and asymmetry to that equation and none of it makes sense. So right. sorry. All bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting conversation, uh, building out a square. So, um, yeah, I don't want to do it again. I could tell yeah. you that much. <laughs> we find, we find it an interesting conversation. If you don't, then sorry. Then why are you listening to this show? Yeah. This stop. is the kind of crap we talk about here. Yeah, go go. Let, let's talk about router planes. How about yeah, that? That sounds it. much better. I like that. Uh, this is from. Uh, this is what it says. Tats Matt. I like it. <laughs> Tats Matt. Oh no, sorry. No, that's that's, that's a sentence. It. That's the end. It says awesome. Yeah, it's, a, it's an entire Matt. sentence. Okay, good. Okay, well then I have no idea who this is from because apparently I left it off. So we're just going to uh, say uh, it's from Steve. Okay, it's from from Bill, a guy. Or, some guy named Bill um, says, I am after a router plane and I'm not sure if I could go should go uh, an open or closed throat. I've not um, read too much about the difference and when and why make options. Wow, this is terrible. Um, I don't know which one to get and uh, what's it like working with each and what size blades to start with. So um, the key to look at is start very simple. So let's go backwards on this. Um, whatever blade it comes with, Go with that. Um, generally, a lot of them come with a quarter-inch blade. Some of them come with a half-inch blade, depending on the size that you get. I think if I were to have two blades, it would be a quarter-inch blade and a half-inch blade because for the most part, I'm using a router plane. A router plane, again, is not for creating joinery. It's for refining already cut joinery. Mm-hmm. You could create a dado with it, but that's super slow. It's not good. Um, you want to have the dado pretty much already done and then come in and flatten it out, which is why it's like a number one hybrid woodworking tool, right? It's the perfect thing to come back mm-hmm. and fix your, your table saw cut dado or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're taking a very, very light cut. Most of our joinery is going to fall into that kind of quarter and half inch range or slightly more or slightly less than one of those. So, you know, three quarter inch joinery can very easily be cleaned up with a half inch router plane blade. A three quarter inch router plane blade tends to be a little too much steel to try to push. Um, that blade is hanging down below the sole. It's totally unsupported. So you end up having to take a really, really light cut when you get to a blade that's much bigger than a half inch. So I say quarter inch and half inch is a good place to start. As far as open throat and closed throat, get both. No. Um, <laughs> Why stop at one? <laughs> um, 
the open throat is going to give you a lot more visibility and what you're working on. Um, closed throat is going to give you a lot more stability because there's more soul to reference on the work. My personal preference is for a closed throat. Um, I like the extra stability, especially if I'm one side is hanging off. If I'm like trimming a tenon cheek or something and I've got a whole half of that router is like hanging off in space over the tenon cheek. I like to have that area closed throat, uh, an open throat. It's very difficult to do that. The plane becomes very, very tippy. Second of all, visibility is less of a, of a concern for me because again, the joint, whatever it is, is already mostly formed. So there's some sort of shoulder or wall to the dado mm -hmm. that I can play bumper pool and work my way down. I don't need to see, I can close my eyes and just bounce my way down the dado. It's all about the stability more than anything else. Second of all, if you're working on a narrow piece, say you're doing some router plane work on the edge of a door, the closed throat is entirely ineffective. That closed throat just kind of straddles it and you can't use it at all. So there are reasons for greater visibility if you're doing really, really precise, think like really delicate stringing inlay or something like that. The open throat is a great idea for that, which is why I have an open throat router plane. It gets used specifically for that. The rest of the time I'm using a closed throat plane. It's just, it's just better. I'm just gonna put it that way. It's just better. So I think what he's, he's got to be thinking in his mind, Lee Nielsen or, or Veritas. And most people who are, who are contemplating this decision are looking at both. And it looks like Lee Nielsen offers both closed and open throat. I'm going to, to say if, if I'm assuming that's his decision he's trying to make, if he is making the decision hands down, as much as I like Lee Nielsen, I think the Veritas router plane is the one, the one to go with. And that is a closed, uh, yeah. the reason it's for got that, a lot more extendability to totally, it. Totally. Yeah. And you can choose a really wide selection of blades. They have a ton of different blades ranging from, and also metric, uh, as well, ranging from a 16th to three quarters and you could, Oh, thank you. This is the kind of service I pay for here. Nicole just brought me a fresh water. Thank you. Hon. Wow. I actually texted her cause my throat's dry. I'm parched. Um, but you can actually mount the blade backwards on the, the plane and it effectively is operating like an open throat plane. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of it as like a bullnose plane, but you're right. It's now an open throat plane. Yep. Hey, all right. So I have a Lee Nielsen router plane up for sale. All of a <laughs> So that's why I think because of the, the uh, multiple blades you can buy and the fact that you could just reverse the orientation of the blade and go backwards, the, the Veritas version is just a no brainer um, when yeah. you're comparing the two. I do think they've gone a little overboard yeah, in maybe. some respects. Well, you mean the Bluetooth like, speaker that's included in the handle? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the router plane is getting very close to one of their April Fool's jokes at this point with the number of <laughs> yeah. bolt-on options they have. But, yeah, you got a yeah. little mic micrometer on the top so you can get down to the nearest thousandth. Yeah, a little digital yeah. display. Yeah, but <laughs> the, they're there. really thin blades. They have like eighth inch, 16th inch blades now. So awesome. Mm -hmm. It's so nice to have that option now. Yeah, so. I agree. Okie doke. Next question here is from, who's it from? Ryan. Uh, so this question is geared toward Mark and I keep, this is like the third show in a row. We're talking about miter saws, but um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. He says, hi guys, question geared toward Mark. Recently you addressed a question from a caller uh, emailer about miter saws, specifically the accuracy of sliding saws. Also, I wasn't able to attend live, but I did watch the recent guild live show focused on the necessity of miter saws and fine woodworking shops. A couple questions related to this topic. Uh, one, you mentioned that the Capex changed your approach to the miter saw. So would you go back to it? 
Having experienced the Bosch and the Makita and the battery-powered DeWalt, do you now consider the Capex one of the necessity Festool tools? Is the Capex the solution to the Mitersol question? So um, this this goes back to an article that I wrote explaining why I moved away from some Festool stuff. And I really just pared my collection down to the things that I felt were true game changers. Uh, things that truly made a difference and owning them just made my life that much better easier and better. Uh, and the Capex was one of the things to go because my logic was any miter saw can cut. If set up and calibrated properly, it will cut and it will do the job that I need it to do as long as I avoid like the bottom end. And so far that's been true. But what happened was the Capex was just so darn good and reliable and the cut quality was so good that I started to change my perspective on cross cuts. I started to do a lot less at the table saw with my sleds and uh you know um, miter gauge and started to use the miter saw for that just because it's so fast and so easy you just throw the wood up there and boom you're done so um at this point when i evaluate this am i going back to the capex the answer is no because one of the other reasons why i moved away from uh festool where it wasn't crucial was because i wanted to have a tool collection that was a little bit closer to what the average person watching my show would have which means having some of those uh mid-range um you know bosch dewaltz uh you know th- these companies were, were familiar with in that range so i don't i i think the capex miter saw it's really an outlier in all of this. So yeah, it does the job a little bit better, but if I'm trying to, to be a little bit closer to what everyone else does, then I should be doing most of my cross cuts, my critical cross cuts at the table saw and then using the miter saw for, you know, rough cutting, or if I need to do some, uh, some crazy angles and, you know, crown molding or something like that. So I don't see that as a good reason to go back to the capex. I think it would further, um, push me away from my ultimate goal with what I'm doing here. Uh, so secondly, the Bosch and Makita are 12-inch saws. Is this, is this a size you'd recommend? Does the 10-inch capacity of the Capex limit the saw's advantages over the table saw? Currently have a Hitachi miter saw, which is extremely accurate and user-friendly, but the dust collection is just terrible. Looking at the Capex, but would love your thoughts. Okay, so if you're going for dust collection, you don't really have much choice. The Capex is kind of it. Uh, the Bosch right. is... Bosch makes like an attempt at dust collection, but without modification, it's not very good. And the Makita, the newest one that has great dust collection, which is why I bought it, has manufacturing flaws that have not been addressed yet. So I would steer very clear of the new Makita for now uh, until they get that crap worked out. So 10 inch is fine. I think the Capex was designed in such a way to really harness as much of that 10 inch as possible, where in many cases, the capacity of the Capex, even at only 10 inch, is actually close to what most run-of-the-mill 12 inch saws can do. So look at those numbers and you'll see it's actually um, surprisingly good in terms of capacity. What you're describing here though, um, Ryan, it sounds like you should buy a Capex. <laughs> Just when you're the way you're talking <laughs> about these things, uh, you're looking for that increased dust collection, you're looking for that additional accuracy and precision. Um, you can get some of these things from the other tools, but it sounds like you're already like 90% there and you just need that little pink, <laughs> that little push. Um, I am not anti Capex by any means. I think you'll be perfectly happy with it. Right. It's okay to like Festool. Yeah. Get it. So I would say that that's, if that's where you're leading with this, don't treat yourself, treat yourself. I, I can, I can say you will not regret it. I don't think there's any regrets there. I mean, maybe it'll hurt for a month or two <laughs> as you're making payments on your credit card. <laughs> I don't know about your financial situation, but I don't think I don't think you're going to regret it. Okay, this is an interesting question. It's from Andrew. He says, "What projects have you um, have you lot?" Oh, Kenny. 
He's absolutely covered in sawdust right now. <laughs> nice. What a, black dog, a black covered dog covered in, in, in uh, sawdust right now. That's perfect. Um, Andrew says, what uh, projects have you lot added texture to and using what method or technique? More importantly, what techniques would you recommend for someone wanting to try their hand at it for the first time? So I thought this was kind of interesting. We probably should do this as a co-answer, but um, I love texture in my projects. Um, I will, uh, a couple of projects that have actually textured a drawer front just using like a carving gouge. And I think the, the, the technique there or lack thereof was as random as possible, Mm -hmm. you know, try to try to facet the surface as much as possible and make little divots in kind of random things, step back like across the room and take a look at it and go, eh, it needs a little something over there, you know, do, do the little Bob Ross thing and make happy little divots um, (laughs) all over the, all over the surface. Um, I've also found that, um, just in the hand tool work that I do, I actually strive for more faceted looks on things. It's got that kind of handmade look to it. So just as simple as grabbing my foreplane and scalloping an edge or scalloping a, a surface, a flat surface. But, you know, instead of focusing on um, thicknessing the board, focusing on on actually smooth planing. So um, I'm you know, paying attention to tear out and stuff like that stuff that I would normally ignore when I've got a four plane out and just trying to hog off wood and you can get really cool kind of undulating wavy textures very easily with just a regular old plane with a curved edge on it. The other thing is, um, uh, I mentioned carving gouges already. Um, any hollowing type work. I actually kind of love the idea. I made a, um, Oh shoot. It was just a serving tray uh, of some sort. And I just carved like a little round divot, like a little round circle, um, in the Mm -hmm. side of it. And it was just cool. It provided shadow where there was none before that. And the fact that I carved it. So it was a slightly faceted look inside. So it wasn't this perfectly smooth thing. Um, it served no purpose whatsoever. I suppose you could, maybe you could do like a sushi board and put like a tiny little bit of soy sauce in there. Cause it was like, an eighth of an inch deep at most, Mm -hmm. but it was just kind of a cool thing. You know, sometimes that texture, that little, whatever it is that breaks up the light as it reflects across the surface is enough to just kind of go, Ooh, check that out. That's kind of cool looking, you know, um, carving does the same thing. Moldings do the same thing. Um, there's, there's a fair amount of texture that comes with that. Um, Mark, I know you've played with this a fair amount with like power carving and things like that. I mean, you've got that piece that you made it David Marks that like mm-hmm. launched the the whole love of power carving for sure. you. Yeah. It's, you know, with power tools, you can get kind of crazy with it because you can go fast and you find that you've now covered 90% of your project in texture and now it looks like crap, but um, yeah. I haven't really yeah, less done. Less is more definitely. <laughs> yeah. With texture, you do have to be restrained a little bit. Um, I actually don't do much of this, but the times that I have done it, I've just basically used a little die grinder and I've got a like oval shaped ball mill on there and I just do a little tap, tap, tap action and it takes a while, but eventually you get the whole surface. And again, like you're talking about, you want to sort of create this illusion of randomness when it's truly anything, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be random. Um, but the few times I've done it, uh, three actually now that, um, I like it. I think it looks really good. It gives it this weird hand hammered almost sort of look Mm -hmm that is, uh, it's unmistakable and it's hard to replicate with any other method, you know? So, but again, I don't think it's good on large surfaces. You have to be really, really restrained, restrained with your use of it. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's definitely an artistic thing and I'm not one to yeah. throw out the art word, 
because I, I always have trouble determining what truly is art and what isn't. Um, but this is definitely something that I feel once you've designed a project and you've got the wood species, you've got everything like proportions laid out, you decide to put some texture into something. I can't see that as anything but an artistic endeavor. And I don't consider myself very artistic. So that's why sometimes I'm, I'm very hesitant to do this to something because I'm afraid of ruining it or making it look really dumb because I've just now put a bunch of little divots in it. Um, yeah. But I mean, maybe that's the reason why a lot of people don't do it is because it actually does take a certain level of technique and a certain level of an artistic eye where it's, it's almost all too easy to go too far. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's bitten me several times. Mm -hmm. um, one stroke too many. Um, I, I've had a lot of, you said this earlier about kind of the smaller surfaces. Yeah. I've used this on drawer pulls before. Um, yeah. and, and you can get, the, I think the smaller the part you're doing it to, the smaller the area you need to texture. Because it's like I textured the entire face of the drawer pull and it looked like crap. <laughs> and then I went back and I textured like just a little spot in the center that ended up being like an eighth of an inch circle. And it was awesome. It yeah. totally changed the look of everything. By the way, if anybody's watching the video, this little divot in this piece of mahogany. That's what I'm talking about. Mm, okay. um, it's kind of hard to see in the camera, but this is actually a carving practice board that um, I worked on with Chuck Binder years ago. And I've just kind of kept it around the shop, but it was a technique for carving uh, a concave surface with a single gouge. And that's what inspired me to kind of play with it and add it into things. It's just simple, simple stuff. Pick up a couple carving gouges and have some fun with and it. And it's something similar to that with um, the Krenov inspired stand that I did in the guild. Uh, I made an oval on the front of the drawer and then ran a piece of sycamore through it. So it was basically mm. an oval divot with a, uh, a thin piece of this uh, sycamore going from side to side that gives you the little handle pull that you could pull on. So the oh, divot, cool. the divot itself served no purpose other than giving you a little more finger space to be able to grab that, that little handle that was there. Um, but yeah. that was totally presented as a, I've got this idea. It might be terrible, but I'm going to try it anyway, you know? Right. Oh, and I just thought of uh, another one. Um, I've only done this a couple of times, but it's very commonly used on a lot of period furniture, the stippling of a background. Mm -hmm. So if you have like a carved surface or maybe you have a fretwork surface, the background behind it is just stamped. You know, yep. they'll have like, uh, you could even use like a nail set and just pound it through and kind of stipple the background because it, what it does is it breaks up the reflection behind it, differentiates the background and allows mm. what's in front of it to pop, you know, whatever that fretwork is or whatever the relief carving that is over top of it. It's kind of a, a cool, easy technique to do. I'm pretty sure sort of a go back in your time machine to like 2007. I'm didn't Tommy Mac do that on his yeah. Bombay yeah, secretary. He did a, a, no, not on the Bombay. He what built a, a, a joint chest, a, um, Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Think, think Peter Follinsby. He built yes. the Jacobean um, chest. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. And, I knew there was and, something where I saw that technique for the first time. I think it, yeah, was, it was the same it was low relief carving and he stippled the background to make the, the carving pop a little bit more. Yeah. Right, right. Very, very common 17th century technique. Gotcha. Yeah. By the way, I saw a uh, Facebook live thing uh, where he was half naked and by half naked. I mean, topless, which is you know, <laughs> it's your top half. So it's half naked. Uh, and he's on Facebook live topless and his wife is measuring things. <laughs> Uh, but what it actually turned out to be, come on, get, get your, get your minds out of the gutter people. Um, I guess he's having back surgery, so they had oh, to no. do like very specific measurements for this type of surgery. I don't know anything about it, but I, I was busy with something. So I was quickly watching and then had to go do something else. Uh, but Hey, wish you luck, Tommy. It sounds like a, a very scary kind of surgery situation, but hopefully yeah, everything's no okay. Kidding. 
Oh, you know, not to beat this one to it with a, a mm-hmm. not to beat this dead horse, but Jim in the chat room just said you can use a spoke shave to sculpt an edge. And he's absolutely right. I've had a lot of success with that. Just kind of not necessarily rounding the edge over, but kind of sculpting it and giving it a little bit of um, irregularity. Um, mm-hmm. That's a lot of fun. Well, I think in general, hand tool users like to call this like something they're doing intentionally because their surfaces right. are always irregular and crappy. So they have to be like, oh, well, that's just, that's what we call texture. Yeah. It's an authentic look. <laughs> authentic texture. Okay. So we have a, uh, another question here that we're, we're both, well, we've kind of been doing a good job of both of us answering questions <laughs> so far. So let's do more of that. Uh, Billy Newton wrote in, he says the other day, my mom visited us. She's pretty handy and wanted to learn how to use some tools in my shop. We use some scraps to make pencil holders. She used the bandsaw, the jointer, the planer, the table saw with a sled and the router table. I cut the miters because I was not comfortable with her doing that. Afterwards, I wondered if I let her do too much on the machines that are foreign to her. Have you ever had to teach a friend or a family member in the shop? And if so, were there certain limitations you placed on them regarding tools or processes? This is interesting. I think yeah. this, this goes along the same lines if we were answering the question about uh, do you let kids in your shop? Right, right. Yeah. Although in this case, like if we're talking adults – you can't really throw the kid card as in, you know, they should know what they're doing type thing, yeah. which actually could be worse because like they could be a total blowhard and I know what I'm doing. Zip. There goes a finger. I can't <laughs> tell you, dude, how many times I've been in a class and no offense if you happen to be an older gentleman that took a class with me. I'm not if saying if you happen to be a blowhard, I'm no not offense. saying which one of you, um, but I've seen many, many times in class situations and classes that I've taken like other people that are taking the class where there's this dude who's got a router and thinks it's his job to take that router and shove it as hard as he can into the work. And I'm just like, there's no subtlety or finesse with, with their motion with the router. And then the router just wants to go flying and the work wants to go flying. There are just people uh, who don't naturally have that hesitation. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word for it, but it's a, it's a degree of finesse that you need to bring, especially to a power tool so that the tool doesn't just take over. And, and you lose control over it. So I've seen people who are falsely confident. You know, they have this confidence that they have no business having with that yeah. tool and it makes it even more dangerous. So sometimes a person being a little bit tentative, while too much is bad, a little bit can can be helpful. Yeah. I think in, in this case, and, and I had this situation with my brother. Um, we were making a, a, a gift for my mom and thought, you know what? You're here. Let's build Let's build something like mm-hmm. in my shop for mom. She'll love that. She didn't yeah. care what it is. The fact that we built it together is what she cared about. Right. And um, he's a very handy guy, but he was very quick to say, I'm out of my element. Like he is, he is like on the job. I mean, he's a civil engineer, so he's just pouring concrete more than anything else, but he's on the job with contractors and, you know, pneumatic nailers and stuff like that. And he walked into the shop and he's like, Oh geez. And he was intimidated. And I relied upon him to tell me, you know, what do I do here? Let me back off. Let me back off. Um, in a situation where somebody, cause he had enough knowledge to know how dangerous things could be, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. And this was back in my power tool days. You know, we were using table saws and band saws and all kinds of stuff. So, um, I, I think there is a certain aspect. If the person in question is comfortable doing what they're doing, then just kind of staying close mm-hmm. can be all that's needed. You know, I think there's an, an aspect of letting them do it, you know, empower them to, to do it, but kind of just keep your hand <laughs> real close by, yeah. you know, to hit a power switch or, um, 
guide them or something like that, you know, or if necessary, walk them through whatever this process is. Do that kind of rehearsal. Okay, this is what we're going to do. Are you comfortable with that? Oh, yeah, totally good with it. Are you sure? You know, all right, let's do it. Or if it's a repeated thing, you do it first, let them watch you and then do it. And I think I'd feel pretty comfortable. I think in every in every case, with every one of these tools, it would be pretty much what you described there. It's a three-step process. You're going to sit there. You're going to talk about it. You're going to do it. You're going to demo it first so they see what has to happen. And you're going to explain what pressures and forces are at play and what they need to do. Then you can, you know, depending on the tool, you could usually let them do a dry run without the tool running so they get comfortable. And then, like you said, are you comfortable? Do you want to do this? If they are, let them give it a shot. You know, and I think at least with the students that I've had, especially in one-on-one classes, I know within about five seconds how much I could trust that person when how much, yeah. how much distance I can let there be between me and them and an emergency like su- shut off switch, you know, like, <laughs> and, and you can, you can tell people have all kinds of, um, body language that let you know whether yeah. or not they have confidence at this tool. And if they don't yet, then I know I need to be a little bit more hands-on. So it is something where you're going to have to watch the person and judge. And this is why I brought the analogy to the, the kids being in the shop. It's the same thing. There is no one right answer. It depends on the kid and their aptitude and how well they handle these things. So same thing with an adult. And I think, you, like you said, you, you do need to be a little more careful because adults can come at this with a false sense of security that they shouldn't have uh, that can actually throw off your judgment of the situation. But I wouldn't say that there's, I mean, I think the table saw might be the last tool that I would let anyone, doesn't matter who they are or how old they are, the table saw would probably be the last tool that I would have them use unless we're doing like a sled operation with clamps holding the workpiece. Um, outside of that, I would, uh, you know, not that I wouldn't let them use it, but I would wait till they have a bunch of other power tools under their belt before I let them hop on a table saw. Right. You ever let Nicole use your table saw? Heck no. Actually, <laughs> she uh, she doesn't use much of the tooling. I mean, she she likes the lathe. And uh, when she turned some bowls and she did the spoon recently, I had her cutting the blank at the bandsaw. And mm. I was really pleasantly surprised. I mean, here's a girl who has seen more woodworking educational <laughs> footage than she has ever wanted to see. <laughs> so she's be- definitely been around it, but has never necessarily had her hands on the material making the cuts. And I was really pleasantly surprised. She did not need much guidance in terms of where her hands are, where to apply pressure, how to turn the workpiece, what to expect of the blade as she's trying to make turns and things like that. So she did really, really well. Nice. Um, but yeah, soon I, I enough, she's going to be trolling your YouTube channel. I can only hope. I mean, lots of you should. <laughs> You know, you could have done it this way. Actually, I should say, uh, Shannon Rogers does it this way. And oh, Lord. <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. So far, I don't think that's ever happened. So. Uh, not yet. Well, actually, any hand tool video, uh, usually that stuff comes up. God forbid I, I, I venture into the hand tool territory <laughs> and you get all the, the Shannon Rogers and Paul Sellers zealots coming out after you. And, and Cosman, too. Let's throw him in there, too. Okay, so I got one more question here. How are we doing on time? Doing don't, okay? do that. <laughs> don't do that. Please. Uh, we actually have a fun question. It's got nothing to do with woodworking, but I thought it was Woo-hoo! fun. So why the heck not? Um, oh, crap. I forgot the guy's name. Okay. Well, I'm just going to read it. I you know who say, you are. I forgot to hit record. Don't do that. No, I definitely. No, not this time. Uh, okay. So just for fun, not exactly wood related, but not necessarily a deal breaker for you guys. So <laughs> what's he trying to say? <laughs> what is he trying to say? Okay. Recently read an article on Yahoo that used quote unquote data to determine the most hated food in each state. So we'll put a link there if you want to check out your state and uh, Shannon, bring yours up because I I didn't see what uh, Maryland has. He says, now being that I've arbitrarily designated each of you as the sole representative of your respective states, I inquire, (laughs) what say you? 
Mark is off the hook because, and uh, Colorado's product or food that they hate is Flaming Hot Cheetos. Uh, so he says, you're off the hook because Flaming Hot Cheetos are superfluous at best, uh, or I assign you to New Jersey and the logic demonstrated there is impeccable. However, Matt's state is hating on beans, which is not only extremely vague, but also ignoring an excellent source of fiber. And Shannon, I don't even know what to say about yours. Apparently, the remaining occupants of the food world are absolute, uh, are absolute perfection there. So let's see. I don't think the next part is necessary to read. So let's look at the, let's look at this. Okay. Flaming hot Cheetos. I can tell you I've never eaten them, but here's the, here's the weird thing about this. Shannon would be much more prepared to address the hatred of flaming hot Cheetos being a Colorado thing than I am because <laughs> he yeah. spent a heck of a lot more time in Colorado than I have. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably because regular Cheetos are more orange, more Broncos colored than yeah. flaming hot Cheetos. They're a little more red. Yeah. And kind of like the chiefs. Yeah. And yeah, for that. And then for the college fans, we pretty much still hate Nebraska. So Mm -hmm. any big red, we're not into it. So I think knowing what I know of Denver, it's a very sports oriented town. That's probably why. It's a good point. I like that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, What's Maryland? The corner piece of a brownie. What? (laughs) And what they, what data? I mean, obviously let's just put this out there. This is clearly BS. This whole thing is stupid, but what data could they possibly use to determine that? I guess a lot of corner brownies left over. In, uh, like like, who, who's measuring corny, corner brownies? I don't know. I kind of like the corner of a brownie. I it's, guess that just further it's got uh, more shows that I'm not a Marylander. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Um, so gas station wine is the thing that's hated in New Jersey. I saw that. <laughs> Isn't that kind of universally hated everywhere? I mean... I, I guess. I mean, I guess it depends on which gas station you shop at or... Uh, you know what? Wine is terrible. So uh, for all you folks who drink it, I mean, it's, it's good. I'm glad you enjoy your, your sour grape juice, but uh, I can't, can't stand wine. Wine is just terrible. Some of this makes sense. Like like Washington doesn't like Keurig K-Cups, you know, up in Starbucks land. Okay. You know, I, I, can, I can see that. But, yeah, because there's know. like a coffee place on literally every block. Hawaii doesn't like Coke. Okay. What, like RC Wait. Cola? Or what's, yeah. what's their preference there? Voss the water. funny thing is, is I was looking at this map and there's this tiny little dot like in Maryland. And I was mm-hmm. like, what state is that? It's like, oh yeah, DC. Right. <laughs> they don't right. like turkey bacon in DC, apparently. Uh, bunch of turkeys down there. It is. All right. Well, this is totally stupid. So if you want to go check yeah. this out, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see what this stupid thing says about your state. Let <laughs> us know what you think. All right. I think that just about does it for our show today. Shannon, how about you give them that contact info and we'll get out of here. I can do that. If you have stuff you want to tell us, a bunch of ways to do us. Create a voicemail by using your voice memo app on your phone and send it to woodtalkonline at gmail.com or just write us at woodtalkshow.com slash contact or just go to the webpage and write it there and <laughs> send us likes and fun stuff on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We're all there at, at woodtalkshow. Nice. Sounds oh, good. Show. Woodtalkshow.com. Okay, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.